Do keep your Bibles open at that passage on page 73. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we've already been reminded, you are a faithful God. You are unchanging. And as we look at events that happened long ago, please speak into our lives today. May we see you through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Life is full of highs and lows. This week, I had a postcard from two very proud parents. On the front was a perfect little baby boy, a cute little face poking out from a blanket. But on Monday, I went to a funeral. My daughter-in-law's mother had died just three days after the diagnosis of aggressive cancer. And when life's good, it's easy to praise God, isn't it? But what about when life's tough, when it's difficult, when we don't understand? Do we doubt? Do we become discouraged? Do we question what God is doing? Is he still in control? At the end of last week's passage, if you were here, you'll know the Israelites were singing to God. He'd miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea. On their lips were the words, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. But just three days later, everything's changed. The people are thirsty. Their praise has turned to grumbles. And perhaps it's easy for us to jump in and say, why did they do that? But before we do, let's just take a moment. See if you can place yourselves in their shoes. Imagine you've been journeying 40 miles through the desert. It's an unknown and inhospitable environment. The sun is scorching down. And it's a place with venomous snakes and scorpions. You long for refreshing water, but there's none. And then you have a moment of hope because ahead of you, someone spots water. But then the news comes back. The water is too bitter to drink. Where is God? Can they have forgotten so soon the God who rescued them? The God who showed his power? He sent ten miraculous plagues, you'll remember. He promised them death. He didn't promise them death. He, he didn't promise them death. He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. 
I suspect we can identify with their pain. Their suffering was real. But what they did with that anguish was wrong. They didn't bring it to God like the psalmists do. Instead, they grumble at Moses. And actually, if you think about it, that complaint isn't really against Moses at all, is it? At the heart of their grumbles is a lack of trust in God, in the God who already revealed himself to them in the most incredible ways. So, I wonder, how does God respond? Well, if you're like me, grumbles annoy you. They have a tendency, actually, to put my back up and make me a bit less amenable. And if you've got young children, you'd probably agree with me. Only a few weeks ago, I witnessed the the constant whine of a child who wanted an ice cream. And you sympathised with the parent. And actually, there was going to be one of two results. If you were like me, that child would have had no ice cream. The alternative, of course, is that the parent is so worn down by the grumbles that, that actually they give in and the ice cream appears. But God isn't like us. He responds to his people not because of their grumbles, not even in spite of their grumbles, not even because Moses has cried out to God. He gives because of the kind of God he is. He's a gracious God. He gives us what we don't deserve. In fact, God's actually gone ahead of his people. He knows what they need before Moses even asks him. Because planted by those bitter waters of Mara is a tree. And it's the very tree that can make that bitter water sweet again. And then in his grace, God leads the people from Mara to Elim, a place with 12 springs and 70 palm trees. He takes them from a bitter place to a better place, from despair to hope. But God doesn't leave them there. Fast forward one month, to the beginning of chapter 16. And we've got a grumbling people again. They haven't learnt to trust God. Those niggling doubts have set in once more. And this time, the grumble's all about food. In verse 24 of the previous chapter, the people grumbled. This time it's the whole community that's grumbling. They're longing for their old life. They've forgotten all about that hard labour of slavery in Egypt. All they can think about is their stomachs. In the Nile Delta, there was a ready supply of food. It doesn't begin to enter their heads that a loving God wouldn't have rescued them so he could just leave them to die in the desert. But I wonder if at the heart of that is what makes us slip away from God too. They were feeling sorry for themselves. And the more we think about our own feelings, the more we lose sight of God, the harder it becomes for us. I wonder if you've read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. 
Screwtape gives the junior devil, Wormwood, advice on how to weaken our faith. And he says, focus a Christian's attention inward. Get them thinking about how they're feeling. Take their eyes off God. But, you know, in the face of the Israelites' sin and doubt, we don't see God's judgment. Once more, we see God's grace. God doesn't even wait this time for Moses to cry out to him. The God who reigns responds in chapter 16, verse 4, with a promise. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And it's not just a once-only provision. He meets their needs every day. And in the evening, he'll provide them with meat. And if that isn't enough, have a look at verse 10. God allows them to see his glory. He's been with them all along, but they're allowed to experience his presence in a very real and breathtaking way. And once more, God's gone ahead of them. Yes, you can explain the gift of the manna and the quail by looking at natural phenomena. And if you want to know how, ask me later. But for God's people to be in exactly the right place at the right time, for each person to end up with exactly the right amount of food, chapter 16, verse 18, is pretty amazing. It says, even those who gathered little didn't have too little. And there were double portions miraculously available on the evening of the Sabbath. Surely that has to be the work of the God who holds creation in his hands. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that the Israelites would have learned their lesson now. Moses tells them God's gift of manna and quail will enable them to know that it was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. Look at God's own words to them in verse 11. He provides them with meat and fills them with bread and they will know that he is the Lord their God. He's Yahweh, the one who revealed himself as I am who I am. His very name expresses his presence, his faithfulness. But God's people, like we often are, are sinful Lacking in trust. If you're doubting God at the moment, then maybe you need to do what the Israelites failed to do and look back at what God's done for you in the past. He is faithful. He is unchanging. He keeps his promises. I think there's probably a reminder too in these verses of just how generous God is. He gives them all the bread they could want. He fills them with bread. As we think about what Dave has been saying to us about our commitment to God, perhaps we need to ask whether we respond to him with that same generosity that he shows to us. Do we reflect our Father's heart in the way we give our time, our money, 
our hospitality. But fast forward again to chapter 17. And we still have a grumbling people. In fact, this time they're not just grumbling, they're quarrelling. And once more, it's because they have no water. They're a bit like a petulant toddler with their parent. I wonder if, like me, you've been the parent of a very willful two-year-old. I can still remember my youngest son sitting down on the floor in Toys R Us and flatly refusing to move because he wanted a toy and he wanted it now. I observed him rather embarrassedly from a distance, but I saw the big picture. I knew it didn't help him to have that toy instantly. It doesn't ever help a child to have everything they want the moment they want it. He simply saw his own need or want. The Israelites didn't trust that God knew that big picture. Instead, in verse 2, they rudely confront Moses with the demand, give us water to drink. And in that same verse, Moses sees to the very heart of the problem. Why do you put the Lord your God to the test? They're asking him to jump through their hoops to prove his presence. If you look at chapter 17, verse 7, it sums it up. The people tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Maybe it's a question we ask when life gets tough. Like them, our feelings change, don't they, in a moment. And yet, all they needed to do was to remember God's faithfulness. To remember that he wouldn't just abandon them. Surely their experience at the waters of Mara had already shown them that God could provide water. It's not surprising, is it, that Moses cries out to God in verse 4, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Places given a new name as a result. Massa and Mariba. It's a bit like renaming Norwich as Testing Witch or Deerham as Complaining Ham. And surely by now, God's patience must have run out. The people deserve his judgment. But God is a God who gives generously to those who deserve nothing. And there at Massa and Meribah, God does something incredible. Picture with me a court scene. On the one hand, we've got God's accusing people. In the dock, or actually in this case on the rock, standing in a place of total vulnerability is God. The Lord of creation is being judged and tested by his sinful people. God's innocent. He deserves to be vindicated. His people are guilty and deserve his condemnation. 
and standing between them, holding the rod of judgment, is Moses. The suspense mounts as Moses' staff comes down. But it doesn't bring judgment. It brings blessing as water just flows out to quench the people's thirst. And that moment takes us to another moment in history when God allowed himself to be judged by his sinful people. Jesus, hanging on the cross, put himself in that place of total vulnerability and judgment. And once more, water pours out, not for our physical thirst, but for that deep spiritual thirst within each one of us. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 34, that blood and water flowed out from the pierced body of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus says, those who believe in him will have streams of living water flowing within them. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, makes a connection between the rock in Exodus and, and Jesus He refers to the Israelites drinking from a spiritual rock that accompanies them through the desert. And actually, that sounds pretty confusing because the rock we've just been looking at was quite clearly a static rock. It wasn't one that travelled. Most likely, Paul's referring to a Jewish tradition that spoke of a continual supply of water that accompanied the Jews in the desert And actually, if you think about it, they would have required water on more occasions than the two we've just looked at and a later incident that's mentioned in Numbers 20. But I think the important point is that Jesus stood in that place of judgment instead of us so that we might experience God's blessing. Which brings us back to our starting point. The Israelites, at the time of their deliverance, sang, The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. As we look at the cross, we can sing those words. Jesus is our salvation. He has redeemed us. But are we like the Israelites? Do we forget that truth? Do we forget everything he's done for us as soon as life becomes tough? Do we trust that God is as present in the wilderness of our lives as he is on the shores of the Red Sea? I don't know if you noticed, but actually it was God who led the Israelites to those places of testing. He took them on their route through the desert He's the one who brought them to Massa and Meribah. And we know that because God was there by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. They couldn't get the route wrong. Chapter 17, verse 1, if you look at it, tells us that they travelled as the Lord commanded. God was in control. He was there in the good times and in the bad. When things are difficult, I wonder if 
we sometimes think that we've got it wrong. We've messed up. God's put us on plan B somehow. But God doesn't work like that. God is sovereign. We don't always understand what's happening in our lives. But God does. God took them to those places because he wanted to build up their faith and trust in him. He wanted them to see who he is. That he's a gracious God who gives generously even when we don't deserve it. No, God doesn't promise us an easy life. But the cross is a constant reminder of God's gracious generosity to those who deserve nothing. If that's how much God loves us, then whatever he brings into our paths is for our good. Paul tells us in Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But God sees the big picture. His purpose for us is to deepen our relationship with him, to form us in the likeness of Christ. I suspect that it's often as we look back at those times where initially we think God's absent, that actually he's most present. In my life, the greatest answers to prayer have always come after times of emptiness. The gift of a job that I hadn't even applied for at the end of a period of unemployment. The gift of a child when I'd begun to give up hope. The opening of new doors when work was no longer the source of satisfaction it had once been. That deep sense of his presence whenever I've needed it most. And no... God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way we hope or expect. But when we have God to rely on, he is always sufficient. So, whatever your circumstances this morning, remember God is unchanging. If you're tempted to doubt his presence, to feel discouraged, then Look at the cross, because there you'll see God's unfailing grace and generosity. He gave the gift we can never earn or deserve, his one and only son. That's how much God cares about you. What greater evidence do we need to give our lives to him, to entrust to him the highs and the lows, because he is faithful. Let's just take a moment of quiet before I lead us in prayer. Gracious Lord, you know our individual situations. 
You know how we're feeling at the moment. Please take our eyes away from ourselves and fix them only on you, on your grace, your faithfulness, your deep love for each one of us. Thank you that our lives are in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.